0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back. I'm Galina Moranco, Doctoral Candidate in Neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Cyrus Patel about his new book, Lucasfilm, Filmmaking, Philosophy and the Star Wars Universe. From A New Hope to the Rise of Skywalker and Beyond... This book offers the first complete assessment and philosophical exploration of the Star Wars universe. Lucasfilm examines the way in which these iconic films were shaped by the global cultural mythologies and world cinema, as well as philosophical ideas from the fields of aesthetics and political theory, and now serve as a platform for public philosophy. Cyrus Patel also looks at how this ever-expanding universe of cultural cultural products and enterprises became a global brand, and asks: Can a corporate ent- entity be considered a filmmaker and philosopher?
0: Well, Cyrus, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to talking about this book, Lucasfilm.
1: Oh, it's great to have you here with us today. So as we have witnessed the unprecedented times of the recent global pandemic, which yet is still ongoing, but I was wondering whether you could start by reflecting on how has it affected you and your work and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from the
0: experience. Well, it's an odd moment to be publishing a book in hard copy because of not only a kind of global paper shortage, but one can't do the kinds of events that one would do uh, in person these days. I'm hoping that'll change at some point in the future. So it's great to be able to uh, do a format like this. In terms of my own teaching, you know, I've been teaching at NYU Abu Dhabi, which is New York University's campus in the United Arab Emirates, which has actually been a really great place to be during the pandemic, they were very forward thinking, proactive and cautious in their approach to the coronavirus. And now basically to do anything in the city, you have to show proof of vaccination and a reasonably recent PCR test. And that's enabled us after a year and a half to get back into the classroom, um, masked of course, and socially distanced. But last spring I taught a seminar that was called Global Tech Star Wars. And it was a sort of advanced seminar to think a little bit about the ways in which star Wars has spread around the world. And it's related to some work that I've been doing, not only on star Wars, but also on Shakespeare. Um, and the thing that was great about that actually is that we had students who were spread out all over the world from the U S to Europe, to Abu Dhabi, to Korea and Singapore, and they managed to join us. We sort of found a common meeting time. And so we were able to have this truly global seminar that, uh, was enabled by technology. And one of the subjects of the books is is sort of the right use of technology. And I think Zoom and the other kinds of synchronous meeting formats that we now have may well be a technology that we might wanna actually keep making use of even in education once the pandemic um, ends. One of the best practices that we were told as professors to help students avoid what we might call Zoom fatigue was to have a mixture in classes of asynchronous And synchronous sessions. And so for two courses that I did last fall, I actually took advantage of a kind of temporary recording studio that we had set up here in our humanities building and recorded lectures on two subjects. One of the things was foundations of literature one, the other was uh, global Shakespeare, in which I basically structured lectures around 11-minute segments. We were told that 11 minutes was a pretty optimal time and around various questions. And the students would watch these lectures related to the week's reading, and then they'd respond to them in a very structured form. So if a class was supposed to be about 75 minutes, the lecture would be 50 to 60 minutes, and then they'd have 15 to 20 minutes to respond to them. I would collate these responses, and then we would use them as the basis for our synchronous Zoom discussion the following Wednesday. And I think it actually worked pretty well as both a mode of delivering content, but also, it kind of made them, maybe I'm flattering myself, but I think they were looking forward to seeing us all once a week on Wednesday. So it, it really not only avoided Zoom fatigue, but kind of heightened expectations for those meetings. And Of course, we never got done uh, as much as we wanted, and the discussions were always very lively. So I've actually now taken that format, and now that NYU in New York is um, gone back to, to uh, in-person meetings, I'm nevertheless doing this as a remote course for them this semester just to try out whether this will actually work as a kind of format for you know, delivering online education going forward. I think I read in the New York Times at some point uh, an article that said, look, you know, Zoom is going to be with us, and maybe it's not a bad thing. Is it better for a student in a community college to be with 30 other students in a class and an overworked adjunct, or to have a course that's carefully designed by a professor with something like Pixar production values that's being um, offered uh, locally and maybe globally as well, or in a network kind of way. And I gave that some thought. I thought, well, if this is inevitable, might as well try to make the best case out of it to to use the technology in ways that we think of as, as optimal and actually adding some value. So that's one of the ways in which my pedagogical practice might have changed as a result of the pandemic.
1: That uh, you had to be quite creative uh, during this time. Did you also enjoy it?
0: I did. Actually, I have to say, I got. I've been filmed a lot. I mean, I think I was the only person in the English department back in in NYU who was interested in the dean's offer pre-pandemic to have the department think about models of online education, and this stemmed from a. Oh, years ago, I was asked about maybe. Could NYU imitate MIT's sort of online education programs, distance learning, and could they maybe experiment with capturing my lectures, you know, in a kind of high-end way with a video camera and mics? And I said, that's fine, I'll do it, but I'm not going to change the course for this, and you can't show any of the students, but go ahead and experiment with your capture mechanisms. So they recorded about, I don't know, 20 some odd lectures on American Literature One, and then, of course, having all this content into the can, they came to me and said, well, couldn't we maybe post it? I'm like, fine. So, in fact, there's a whole series of lectures of mine on American Literature One that are available as um, YouTube videos and uh, Apple Store podcasts. And every now and then, somebody will write to me from someplace in the world and say, Thank you so much. I really enjoyed re- listening to those lectures on Moby Dick. So, that made me actually think, Oh, I'm doing something valuable. that. That people think is still valuable. Of course, I was going to do it now, I would do it in a different way. So this attempt to create these kind of asynchronous lectures that I've been doing is a a way of thinking about what I would have done back then if I were designing a lecture course specifically for this medium. So yeah, it's fun.
1: So can you tell us more about yourself and how did you get interested in both philosophy and movies? (laughs)
0: Wow. <laughs> it's interesting, right? To be interested in philosophy and movies <laughs> and be a literature professor, which is, is what they gave me the PhD. And so I, I don't know, I've been interested in movies since I was a little kid. I used to love to read movie reviews of of movies that were R-rated and that I couldn't go to in the, in the 60s. I used to read Mad Magazine like a lot of boys did in the 60s. And my favorite part of it was the movie spoofs. So I always had an ongoing love for movies and thinking about the kinds of storytelling that they did. In school, I got really interested, not so much in philosophy. It wasn't a, stud, a subject that we studied. I grew up in New York. Um, we, I got really interested in history. And in fact, it was a seventh grade history teacher named Tom Squire, who actually gave me my first hint of, of learning how to write. And um, it was an 11th grade history teacher who helped me refine my writing, even more so than my English teachers in a certain way. So I w- was expecting to go to um, college studying history and possibly government and one of the things that happened to me along the way was that i was interested in history and politics and political theory but i met charles dickens in a course and read great expectations and then i met william faulkner in a course and all of a sudden my interest started shifting um in the summer after i graduated from high school i i met james joyce and actually took a i audited as a you know pre college freshman uh, a course at columbia summer school on Joyce. And I was hooked. And so I arrived at at college, I went to Harvard, and in fact, ended up doing all of my degrees there, committed to being an English and American literature major. Of course, back then, if you wanted to do anything in the 20th century, that was all your electives, right? The required courses stopped at the 19th century, but I was really into it. And I was really still very interested in history. So I went to a, a guy who was the professor of Irish studies. He was an old school professor, white shock of hair, uh, about to retire. And I went to him and I said, look, I really want to work with you for my senior thesis. I had your course as a freshman. Would you be willing to work with me on Joyce? And he was interested. And I said, and you know, I, I have a, a topic. I think I know we need to mar- narrow it down. It's history and Joyce. He goes, oh, no, no, you only have to read one book. I'm like, really? Well, what's that? He said, oh, Finnegan's Wake. I'm like, oh, Finnegan's Wake. I haven't read that one yet. I'll go and read it. And I don't know if you've ever opened Finnegan's Wake, but it's not written in English. It's like, you know, a 600 page book that in which almost every word is a multilingual pun. Mm -hmm. So, of course, I couldn't read it. And I went and and I was lucky enough to have the kind of classic tutorial experience with this professor. And we sat in his his library study in the basement once a week, and he sort of taught me how to read this book and. At a certain point, uh, it was back in the day before there were personal computers. So I went home and he had said, look, I'm half time. I'm going traveling in the spring. If you want me to read a draft of your thesis, you need to get it to me by, you know, like January. I'm like, wow. okay." so I went home. My sister's trying to type out her college applications on an IBM Selectric typewriter. So I finally kicked her off that and typed out this draft and I gave it to him and I said, here it is. And he suddenly got really excited about it. And uh, to the point where he thinks it was, he thought later on, it was my idea to do this book. And he was just there to advise me, but he got excited about the thought of that this undergraduate could actually do something on this. And the thesis turned out pretty well. What was fun about it was, and again, this is part of my interest in technology, um, I had this draft. And I decided to take advantage of the fact that all of us had free accounts on the Unix computer, the mainframe at that time. The only problem was trying to do word processing on the mainframe at sort of peak hours was impossible. You would type out a sentence and literally wait for a minute to see it on the screen. So I became kind of vampiric. I would go to the computer room at about two in the morning and type this whole thing in and worked on it and actually having that time to work on it was a really great experience. And it is really until writing this Lucasfilm book, that I've actually managed to have that experience again, where I could basically work on a full draft for an extended period of time without a lot of time pressure. And um, it was interesting to see even then that some of it I used almost verbatim and some of it was seriously revised. And that got me, that was well-received and it got me sort of hooked into to going into literature. I had planned to be a lawyer, but at a certain point, I thought, oh, you know, the world doesn't need me to be another lawyer. And I wasn't all that excited when I was admitted, but on the day that I received my admittance to law school, I happened to meet the Dean of Admissions from the school. And so we started talking over the keg. It was after hours, you know, at at a master's open house. And I explained to her why why I wasn't excited. She said, well, you know, take a year off, defer your admission. I'm like, wow, if the Dean of Admissions says I can do this, I can sell it to my Asian parents. And the last is kind of history after that. Interestingly, in graduate school, I shifted my emphasis away from um, Joyce to US literature. Um, Harvard at that time had just gotten two wonderful professors from Columbia. My mentor, Sack Van Berkovich, and also a person who did ethnic literatures named Werner Solers, who's since then become a very good friend. And, and working with these two really gave me a kind of new lease on literary life, which really kind of impacted the work that I did ever since, and that is reflected in the work in, in this book. I got really interested in what we might think of as contextual, ideological, and other sorts of historical approaches to literature in a way that I hadn't before. And I was constantly still interested in political theory. I had a second reader named Philip Fisher um, who brought me to, you know, I was working on the tradition of mainstream ideology in literature, individualism in particular, and how it interacted and marked literary cultures. And he made me read a lot of political theory that I wouldn't have read otherwise. So all of those interests were starting to come together. But one thing that was in that dissertation that I've never really been able to get into my work since then was an interest in pop culture. I think my, my dissertation advisor wasn't really interested in in pop culture and in fact might've dissuaded me from it, but I'm like a dog with a bone, you know? And so the opportunity to bring all of these things together um, to talk about a film series that has had such a revolutionary impact on popular culture around the world, and to do it in terms of both the literary stuff that I'm thinking about, but also my interest in history and philosophy, which is a, a wonderful opportunity. And I'm really grateful to the series editor for inviting me to do it all those years ago
1: thinking back uh, uh, across your career so far what advice do you have for younger self
0: for well you know i think there is a it's hard to say about mm-hmm. about advice because i've approached my career in a very impractical way and i'll and i'll explain that the thing is as you know my dissertation had Ralph Waldo Emerson and John Rawls and a chapter on baseball and a chapter on hardball detection and chapters on Pynchon and Morrison, right? A real mix of kinds of materials. And that made it actually hard to get that book published. I eventually had to take out all the pop culture stuff in order to to write the first book that I published. But I've always been interested in lots of different things. And so, uh, you know, a very career minded young professor should be advised to write a book, And then follow up that book with something in the same field and specialize and make a name for herself or himself in that field. And that's exactly what I haven't done. I've pursued my interests. Um, It's led me all over the place. And so I think that it worked for me, but I'm not sure it would work for everybody else. I would say that, you know, for my for anybody who's starting off to be any kind of writer, um, whether it's scholarly or creative, I say, give yourself deadlines. And then if possible, give yourself early deadlines. If your thesis is due on a certain day, give yourself a deadline of a week or two beforehand and pull the all-nighters then. Because it was really that experience of alienating myself from that first senior thesis, being able to look at it not as the writer of those sentences, but as an editor that really made it a lot better. And I was really lucky with the Lucasfilm book that that's what actually ended up happening. Because I'd written this book I'd proposed it should come out right before The Rise of Skywalker, and I said it could be a book that would be what was, we didn't know what it was called then, but before the last movie in the Skywalker saga, and I said it could be a book that people would read, and then they would know what to be looking for in The Rise of Skywalker, but as I wrote the book, and as it shifted from being less about George Lucas and more about being this corporate creative entity called Lucasfilm and thereby emphasize the contributions that were being made by people like JJ J. Abrams and Dave Filoni and and John Favreau and Ryan Johnson second generation or next gen Lucasfilm i realized that i couldn't actually publish the book until the saga was complete and i'd been able to think myself about the the ninth movie in other words people instead of being prepared to watch the ninth movie, would see a book that was immediately, they would think out of date. So I had the manuscript, you know, I thought basically done before the rise of Skywalker was released. And then I, you know, waited and waited until it came out. And then actually had, had also a little bit of a rush because I really wanted to get it done, but I kind of knew what I was looking for. And the, the movie ended up, Fitting the analysis that I already had in my mind. So I was able to turn it around pretty quickly, but it did mean I had a lot of time to spend refining the draft. So that's my advice to young writers. Give yourself time to really revise and revise your, your prose and your argumentation.
1: Oh, that's uh, very well put. So your book, Lucasfilm, Filmmaking, Philosophy, and the Star Wars Universe, well, the title already has a few things in it. So how did you come to write that?
0: So the the series editor, Kostika Bradatan, who is a professor of philosophy, he's a philosophy editor for the LA Review of Books, and he's really interested in sort of public philosophy and interdisciplinary work. Uh, He's one of these philosophers who's written pieces about how philosophical thinking needs to remember its roots and storytelling, actually, right? I mean, Plato's Allegory of the Cave is actually a really interesting, quirky, and great story. he was putting together this series and he invited a lot of people who were not only standard philosophers, but also people like me who are more like cultural theorists. Um, and he sent a list of people that had committed to thinking committing to thinking about writing about particular directors. And there were a lot of directors that were still available. And I looked at that list and I thought you know, this list is relentlessly arthouse. And the, the shtick behind the series was it should be a filmmaker that you would write about with whom you kind of had a, a personal relationship or in terms of your intellectual growth or somebody that marks your thinking about philosophy or cultural theory. So I'm looking at these things. And I think like these people don't really speak to me. And a few of the ones that I might be interested in, seem to already be taken. And then I thought, wait a minute, ding, ding, ding. So I wrote to Kostic, I said, look, a series like yours really ought to have George Lucas in it. And I expected him to say, thank you, no, thank you. it's not what we're interested Mm -hmm. in. But he wrote back and he said, of course it should, send me a proposal. And so I did, although even from the very beginning, I wanted to push back against the kind of auteurist idea behind the series, like that this was going to be about directors who had an artistic vision and exerted almost total control over their production so that they were almost akin to filmmaking novelists or something. And I wanted to push back against that for a couple of reasons. One is Lucas himself both adopted and was uncomfortable with Uh, that model. I think an early book about him uh, that had some of his interviews, the the person who edited it said that he was a kind of reluctant auteur. I mean, he'd come from film school, so he had that auteurist side, but there was something that made him uncomfortable about that. And the other thing is I thought filmmaking is really actually in the event a much more collaborative enterprise than any auteurist account can really um, capture. And I think that, you know, auteur is a kind of fiction that we use to talk about how films come into being, but really films are much more collaborative. But as I came to work on this material, I realized that I was less interested in what Lucas might have been said to have absorbed from sources like Joseph Campbell and and other things that he'd been reading and then stuck into his Star Wars films and really about how the films themselves had, had evolved into what we might think of as a kind of platform for philosophizing that they themselves enabled viewers to think of ideas that we would call philosophical and even to engage in kind of real world debates about that. And at the same time, I was thinking that one of the real innovations here was to move from the emphasis on a single genius filmmaker to a corporate body of filmmakers. And you know, this might be controversial, but I think Lucas is selling the, the franchise to Disney was actually the best thing that could have happened or one of the best things that could have happened to Star Wars storytelling because it really guarantees that that kind of storytelling will move forward and move forward in collaborative and unpredictable ways going into the future. And I think, you know, it's been a little bumpy so far, but I think you can see those values um, being espoused as the franchise moves forward as it is doing now, basically for, for the time being through television series.
1: So why is it important to examine Lucasfilm from a philosophical perspective?
0: Well, as I say, it's because I think Star Wars has become one of these global texts, right? Mm -hmm. And not only that, it has become a subject for lots of debate, and even a subject in the, the media that people will think about as an example of the production of toxic fandom. And so what I'm thinking is that That is a kind of symptom of the ways in which in U.S. culture especially, but probably this is true in in the West more generally now, we don't really have a proper civil discourse in which we are able to exchange ideas productively. And for me, this is what lies at the root of the, the theoretical approach that I call in the book cosmopolitanism. Cosmopolitanism arises at first among the Stoics and then in, in Europe in the 18th century, as a kind of response to nationalism, of thinking about the ways in which we owe obligations to human beings beyond the nation. And beyond that, it has evolved into really what I would think of as an approach to difference, right? So it draws on the idea of the universal or the same, like we have an obligation to human, humanity because we're all human beings. But in later iterations, it's also interested in the claims of difference through the claims of toleration and pluralism, but it wants to mediate among those claims, right? So I think a strong multiculturalist position can sometimes put you in the position of thinking, well, you know, there are different cultures out there and we need to respect them all. They all have dignity. I prefer mine because it's mine. I'm sure you prefer yours because it's yours. And we won't comment too much about each other's cultures because, you know, we don't walk in, in our each other's shoes. And I think that's fine to a certain point, but then I often ask my students, is it fine if a longstanding practice in that other culture is genocide or slavery? Can we really say that all values are created equal? And what I think a cosmopolitan wants to do, and in a certain way, this is a fundamentally conservative approach that might remind us of the English poet and critic, Matthew Arnold, who said that you know the, the point of conservative thought or of cultural thought should be to preserve the best that was known and thought Cosmopolitans want to think about ideas and want to try to figure out which are the best ideas, but constantly by testing them through conversation. One of the things that I address in the book is the idea of fallibilism, that we are all flawed beings that were error prone, but rather seeing that as a kind of fatal flaw, the way say a Calvinist might, a Cosmopolitan would say, look, this is an opportunity. It means we really need to learn from other people. We need constantly be to evaluating and testing our values through what we might call conversation. And so what I think is that films like Star Wars enable those kinds of conversations to happen, not in the same way they would happen in philosophy as such, but in a kind of parallel way. And I think, therefore, if one of these, the things this book is trying to do is model the kinds of conversations that we might have prompted by something like Star Wars that would be better models of conversations than the kind that we customarily get on Twitter, Instagram, or or through social media, where people simply attack one another. So that's part of the the idea of writing the book is to kind of demonstrate how Star Wars, I think, demonstrates um, the need for philosophical discourse to become part of the public sphere, but not in the way that makes academic and unapproachable, the way so much academic philosophy is, but really in the way that Costa Cabrerajaan suggests is a kind of public form. And I think film can do that. Although, as I said, it doesn't do it in the same way that philosophical argumentation would. I'll give you an example of that. One of the theorists that I loved in graduate school, and that I mentioned in the book, is the neo-Marxist French structuralist Louis Althusser. And one of Althusser's great insights was that ideological constraint or ideology works, like representation it works by giving people the imaginary representation of their existence to the real conditions of existence right and therefore you might say once its representation that leaves that means it's kind of operating in the same way that literature and narrative and fiction and storytelling are operating which means that it might be susceptible to the most modes of analysis and althusser also says that art, he's thinking generally about art, although I think it applies best to to literature or other narrative forms, gives us something that is akin to science, not the same as, but something that's like science. And one of the key terms for him is this notion of internal distanciation. At one point, he says that art can help us create an internal distance between ourselves and the ideology that we see represented in the art, and that the art itself is creating a distance from the ideology from which it springs, right? So it gives us a kind of parallel experience to, in his case, science. And what I'm arguing in the book is that films like Star Wars can give us a kind of parallel experience to the experience that we might have in philosophical thinking. And in certain respects, it's a very powerful experience because it can help dramatize contradictions, activate you know, even sort of non-rational parts of ourselves through the various modes of persuasion that it has, which are not just the story, not just the character, but also the kind of images and sounds and the overall experience that it promotes.
1: This is so super interesting, uh, the way that filmmaking can be, um, can be thought of as a platform for uh, the discourse for a wider society. But I was thinking, um, how biased do you think or partial the filmmaking is as a platform? Are there any downsides
0: well, I so I do I do think that um, Star Wars is a platform for philosophical thinking. But I think it, I, if we want to carry the metaphor a little bit further, we might say it's slightly tilted. In other words, it is a platform that I think ultimately supports some of the values that I have discussed in the book, having to do with um, individual agency and the right use of technology and the embrace of cosmopolitan values, including tolerance and equality and the embrace of fallibilism. I think, you know, if we can grant Star Wars, the saga, the franchise, a personification or agency, we'd say it would prefer that we think those things. But I would also say, but it wants us to believe in those things, not to have those things forced on us. So it needs to legitimately Give us a chance to test those values, right? To see what it's like to experience the world as someone who believes in those values, and maybe even see what we might think of as the lure of the dark side of the force, right? Because it's only in understanding the pull of the dark side that we might really understand how to reject it. Now, one one trivial way of thinking about that lure of the dark side in terms of the franchise is that probably, you know, many people say, "Oh." They they imagined being Luke Skywalker or they wanted to be Luke Skywalker, which was why they, why they were so upset with the portrayal in The Last Jedi of a Luke Skywalker whose life hasn't quite turned out the way we all expected him to and maybe that he expected it to. But really, if you had to pick who is the most iconic character associated with Star Wars, whose visage you would see and immediately think, Star Wars? It ain't Luke, it's Darth Vader. And there's something about the way Vader is, is portrayed It makes him, you know, in a certain way, he's kind of safe, he can be on your coffee mug, and you're not immediately going to go and become a perpetrator of genocide. But it is a way of dramatizing the power of the things that he represents, the fact that the film makes him a very attractive character. Ultimately, I think the film wants you to reject what he's become, and to support the idea that he can be redeemed from that. But in order to show you the power of the redemption, it needs to dramatize the power of the evil. And there's a risk, of course, that's some people will really be drawn to the dark side. But I think it's a risk that the films invite us to to take.
1: So thinking about Lucasfilm as enterprise, what uh, sort of notable developments, technological or conceptual, uh, were really important uh, during its history?
0: Well, I think one of the things that I talk about in, in the book Lucasfilm is the way in which it was a film that, the first film that created a revolution in special effects and and if you look at the history of cinema, the funny thing about special effects was you weren't originally supposed to notice them. I mean film studios who created special effects were trying to save money by not you know if by by simulating shooting in places that they couldn't be because in fact they were too noisy. So if you did special effects that had like a screen in the back, you could show things and not have to worry about recording in conditions that were not optimal. But therefore, they didn't even publicize the fact that there were special effects shops. And then later on, as location shooting became uh, more and more viable and more and more widely used, special effects, other than in specialty films like 2001, sort of atrophied. And so that when Lucas came to do Star Wars in the late 70s, he realized that they had to invent a lot of new technologies so that he could realize the things that he wanted to put on the screen that he was seeing in his head. And this had everything to do with kind of computer generated synchronicity of of shots and and use of models. And and in a funny way, meant that the the people who were associated with what would eventually become industrial light and magic were actually going and scavenging old tech that was discarded and and reusing things and doing new things with it and pushing it into the future. that attitude towards technology is represented in the film right which the first film which we're told is a long time ago in a galaxy far far away it's already a sense of pastness and the thing that was revolutionary for so many people about star wars was that it looked that universe looked old and lived in and kind of junky with a lot of trash around Mm. and things that were being recycled right so the first shot of the first film Looks like typical sci-fi, and it's kind of what we might think of as a technological sublime, right? A small ship moving downward from the top of the frame towards a planet. Suddenly, we realize it's being pursued by a bigger ship that's even bigger and bigger and bigger. That's truly massive. And all of a sudden, that looks like, wow, it's sci-fi. But when we really get into the Star Wars-y part of the the film, it's when the the droids land on Tatooine, they're in the desert, and they get picked up by the junk trawler, the, the Jawas. And that's where we start to really get into the Star Wars universe. So already there's a notion of reusing technology, old technology being pushed further. And of course, one of the things that's happened with Star Wars is that it has enabled, its success enabled more technological breakthroughs. So now that it still remains kind of on the cutting edge of uh, technology, one of the things that Disney bought along with the Star Wars intellectual property was industrial light and magic. And today, when you look at the way The Mandalorian is filmed, you're really talking about very advanced cinematic technology that has very broad applications. But I've argued that at the heart of Star Wars, despite all of this, maybe because of all this, I don't know. There is a sort of suspicion of technology. So I've argued that that Star Wars is actually what we might think of as a kind of Luddite fiction after the Luddite rebellion in the early part of the 19th century. These people who were loom, they worked on looms and they were artisans weaving rugs and carpets and textiles. And all of a sudden they were being replaced by these machines that could mass produce these things in which the artisan was reduced to... um, just kind of a machine operator. There was no artistry left in it. And I think that Star Wars, in some sense, worries about that, about the wrong uses of technology and the massification of technology. So that Star Wars, you know, that the heroes of Star Wars use technology, preferably a lightsaber, but a blaster we much. But once you get to the Death Star, that's the wrong use of technology. And it has something to do with the scale and the massification. But it's important as the mythology goes on to know that what we realize about the, the lightsaber is that's an individually constructed item and they play on this mythology, right? Every Jedi has to find the crystal. They have to, part of their training, they learn to build their own. The lightsabers are all unique. It's the epitome of the Jedi's training. It's a more refined weapon, Obi-Wan Kenobi says in the first movie. So that's the right use of technology. And one might argue that the special effects film, a la Star Wars is also an example of a right use of technology. You know, I've taught a course that's called uh, Technophilia and its Discontents, and it's examining these questions. And the way I pitch it to students is to, especially those who know Star Wars, is to to ask this question at the start. Why does Luke Skywalker have to turn off his computer in order to destroy the Death Star? I mean, you'll remember them. And Mm -hmm. then they'll say, oh, yeah, because he's got to use the Force. I said, but yes, but why would you create that narrative logic in the first place? Now, he's still using a piece of tech. He's using his X-wing, he's using the blaster that's going to fire the shots, but he's taken away something else from it that you might say would be the fullest expression of that technology, but you might say it's deprived, the computer is depriving him of a crucial part of his individual agency, which in the logic of the film is the connection to the force. And for me, that becomes an emblem for the way that Star Wars wants us to think about technology and the, the course kind of unfolds from there. And I do some of that analysis in this book.
1: This is super interesting. So you sort of partition the use of technology to create the film and actual use of technology within
0: the story. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about both of those things. And in a certain way, as I say, you might say the lightsaber is the, the example of the right use of technology within the narratives of Star Wars and the films themselves. Uh, I'm going to pause for a second. The films themselves are an example of the right use of technology. The reason I pause is, you know, that one of the critiques of the prequel films that Lucas went to to do, which were almost entirely digitally done, was that he got carried away and it started to tip over into the wrong use of technology. Mm-hmm. Too much tech, too much digital. And I think that the filmmakers of the sequel trilogy, J.J. Abrams and Ryan Johnson, were aware of this. So there was a great emphasis in the sequel trilogy of trying to recapture some of the technological ethos of the 1977 film and the first trilogy using a lot of practical effects, putting a lot of care into the creation of puppets and props and weapons, things that you actually would say are not even really going to be on the screen. And that's part of what they're trying to do to restore, tech, you might say, the technological balance into the, in the making of the film. I'm, I'm always struck by the critics of the sequel trilogy who say, oh, Kathleen Kennedy and J.J. Abrams don't love Star Wars. They don't understand Star Wars. They've ruined Star Wars. And I just think that's absolutely mm. not true. The, the generation of filmmakers that's making Star Wars, now, so many of them grew up inspired by Star by Star Wars. They may have even went to film school. They got involved in film because of Star Wars. And now they didn't get a chance to make it. And you're saying they don't care about it? Not possible. And in fact, if you look at the documentary that accompanies the DVD release of The Rise of Skywalker, which is a couple and a half hours long and really interesting from my perspective, the care with which they put all of these films together, even on the accelerated timetable that they were working on for that last movie, is remarkable. I'm particularly struck by all the care that's, that, that goes into the making of one little desert creature on the planet, Pasana, that has like got big ears and fur, and there's they're discussing whether the eyes should do this or should they move, or should the fur be here, and how should it look, and there's a ton of care that's putting it. And that thing is in about two seconds of footage and seen from behind, and you don't even see all of those details that people worked on. But I would submit to you that the film is somehow richer Because those details are there, even if they're not on film. It reminds me a little bit of what the US writer Ernest Hemingway, the great writer of short stories and and, and novels in the early part of the 20th century, said about how to write a successful story. He said, You have to take something crucial out of it. And when that part is gone, it will still resonate and enhance the meaning of what's left. And so I think there's a lot of the attention to detail that goes into Star Wars films, doesn't even necessarily make it onto the screen explicitly but implicitly it's there and you can feel its resonance.
1: We think about the wider society and uh, reflect a little bit of its wider significance, uh, the Lucasfilm. So um, in what way do you think Lucasfilm is shaped and also shapes the political, economic and social uh, forces of the day? And does it have an ability to distance itself from some of the events, for example, or Um, just political uh, uh, sort of environment.
0: Well, you know, once something like Star Wars becomes such a successful pop cultural phenomenon, it becomes a little bit undevoidable, right? So you'll remember that Ronald Reagan was associated with Star Wars. Although I think it was actually a term that was used to describe his strategic defense initiative disparagingly as like, Oh, a Star Wars fantasy program. And of course then he adopted Mm -hmm. it and tried to make it something that you could use as a kind of branding thing. So I think there are, are definitely people out there who try to appropriate Star Wars for, you know, their own, own purposes. But what I think about the way in which Star Wars, um, interacts with what we might call popular culture or political ideology or even the zeitgeist is in the extent to which some of its core values which i would still say in the earlier film are things that we would associate with cosmopolitanism such as toleration and emphasis on strong women characters i think these only grow over time to reflect the greater standing that these ideas have gained since the reagan era into now up until the moment of, you might say, the kind of Trump era backlash. And I think Star Wars got caught up in a a lot of that, a lot of the toxic masculinity that was there in the, the, not only the Trump presidency, but in the discourse that he allowed to become, if not respectable, at least public once again, came out and licensed a lot of what we might think of as the toxic masculinity that greeted the, the sequel trilogy with its, you know, female chosen one in Rey, played by Daisy Ridley, and it's much more multicultural cast. And I think, but I think seeing that was a kind of development that was implicit in Star Wars all along. So that one of the things you might say is that Star Wars to a certain extent reflects, but then attempts to push the boundaries of some of those values that it finds important, right? So Mm -hmm. Disney is committed to certain kinds of um, what we might call Multicultural ideas that make sure there is an equality of representation or at least diversity of representation in its very storytelling forms so
1: what would be implications of having films and movies as vessels for the philosophical discourse for our wider global society?:
0: Well, I think that people love to watch films. <laughs> And not only do people love to watch films, I think people like to talk about films. So if actually we can you know give at least some portion of those audiences um, an opportunity, to talk more deeply about those films, to really think about the ways in which films might challenge them. And I don't mean, you know, the audiences that go to arthouse films that expect to be challenged by lugubrious, indie, Scandinavian thrillers, but rather people that are going to pop entertainment to think a little bit about the ways in which these things are pushing certain values or even manipulating us. I mean, I don't think we should go to necessarily a Star Wars movie and accept it whole hog. Maybe... Maybe the first time, second time, if you go see it again, you might actually want to think about the modes of persuasion that it's using. How is the music swelling at a certain moment to pull at your heartstrings? How is it recapitulating certain scenes that you're familiar with in order to to create a kind of emotional response that then might lead you to an intellectual or or philosophical response? So I think that, you know, I don't wanna make, I don't think filmmaking is necessarily gonna change the world. Um, but I do think that it can be part of the ways in which we try to raise the level of public discourse around the world. And I'm very interested in the ways in which things like Star Wars, and this goes back to those things that I was saying earlier that I've been working on Shakespeare, I'm interested in the way that, that, that works like Shakespeare or Star Wars spread beyond their cultures of origin and in some sense become global property and therefore become a way in which people around the world can have a common heritage you know at NYU Abu Dhabi we would bring people here for admissions weekends and they come from all over the world and more than once in the earlier years when we were trying to explain to people what this was like I found myself even back then talking about star wars it was a kind of lingua franca this can happen with other things right now it may be harry potter films or maybe the marvel universe but in a certain way these kind of global films or this global culture becomes a kind of starting point for conversations um, that people can have around the world and not only that this kind of global art produces new art It produces like both by inspiration, which we see largely in stories, but also maybe even by antagonism. We resist this kind of art and it provokes us to make something new. I haven't read the article yet, but I just saw a headline in which Denis Villeneuve, the the, um, director of Dune Part One, which I saw recently, luckily, it's opened in Abu Dhabi almost a month before the US and really loved, but he talks about needing to kind of resist the Star Wars influence as he's putting together his vision of that world. So Mm -hmm. I do think that, you know, I'm very interested in these kind of what we might think of as global cultural heritage. And if somebody were to say, well, what's an example of it today? I said, Star Wars might be a good example of that. And I think global cultural heritage is good because it's one of the ways in which we can think that globalization can be turned to positive ends. That doesn't mean creating a deracinated global culture. What it means is thinking about the ways in which something can be marked by its local origin and then can spread as the world literature theorist David Damrush might say, it will lose something in its translation and gain something also when it moves from one cultural context from another to another or from one time period to another. And I think all of that is, is very important for us to be, you know, to, as a one way of having the kind of global conversations that we really need to be having, especially now when we face challenges like the pandemic and um, climate change.
1: So what discoveries about yourself or maybe society along your journey to writing your book, Lucasfilm, surprised you
0: the most? I think the thing that surprised me the most actually is that I sort of thought the Shakespeare part of my brain and the Star Wars part of my brain were separate, that they were, you know, the high culture and the the (laughs) pop culture. Actually, they turned out to be the same part of my brain. In other words, I'm really interested in, you know, Star Wars helps me to recapture for myself, um, the ways in which Shakespeare was actually pr- trying to produce popular art. He was a businessman, just like Disney is in business to make money, who was also trying to tell great stories that people would want to watch. And I think that's part of what Disney is trying to do. I think it goes back even further. It, it Star Wars has made me reappreciate something that I, I learned about very young, which was Greek tragedy. I think that's part of what Lucas was trying to do. Well, you know in in, the, in classical Athens, plays were performed in competitions on the side of the hill. It was kind of great popular culture. The city would gather and watch these things and they would have these powerful emotional experiences. And I think that's part of what Lucas was trying to do when he created the first trilogy was to create for a late 20th century US, but hopefully global audience, that same kind of feeling. And I think where he really, I mean, I think part of the reason that Star Wars was so successful was the, that the second film, The Empire Strikes Back, did something really different. The first film was a wonderful, lovable B-movie adventure story with appealing characters and everybody thought it was great. And it could have been done at the end of that movie. It had a slightly open but mostly satisfying ending. With the second film, which had a more open ending, it had, a, it had a, the effect of opening up and also deepening what Star Wars is about all of a sudden it became about fathers and sons and more generally later fathers and their children of confronting history and confronting, you know, the dark side to put it of yourself. And that moment, you know, the moment I'm talking about, right? No. I am your father. I saw that moment Mm. in 1980 on the first night that it was shown in the United States with all these people. We had waited in line for hours at this really big theater in Boston. It was a little bit like, and that wasn't that common back then, but it was really like a kind of party there. And everybody was so excited when they got in. And if you remember the way the Empire Strikes Back starts, it sort of introduces the characters from the first film serially. You see one after the other revealed and the audience is cheering every time there's a new reveal of these characters. And then when you get to that moment and he says that the audience, I remember still gasped. I mean, what? No, <laughs> it was sort of like Luke and what we know, my wife likes to call chipmunk face where, you know, the face that Lake Luke makes But it's really, you know, and then of course we had to wait three years to find out if Vader was trying to trick him or lying. But then we got that line from Yoda, your father, he is. And we, we knew for sure, but that was the moment when I felt personally, and I could almost sense the audience feeling a kind of collective emotion that is, I thought something like what Aristotle is talking about when he's trying to get at these tragic emotions that are raised when tragedy is really working. Like the moment when Oedipus figures it all out, a moment of reversal and recognition where you suddenly see the truth. It's the opposite of what you thought and it forces you to confront difficult truths about yourself and about your history. I'm not sure if that's a cathartic moment because obviously Aristotle had a kind of release involved with catharsis. It's a kind of purgation of emotion. Of course, that moment in the Empire struck back, put us all on tenterhooks for like three years until the next film came out. Now, of course, people don't have that experience. And it's, it's, it's an, another, it's a, that's a kind of lesson in the way the meanings of, of art change over time. Um, I know my kids didn't have that experience. At a certain point, my older son, when he was little, we were flipping channels at a friend's house and there was a picture of Darth Vader. And he's like, who is that scary black man? And I'm like, uh, we're not gonna watch that right now. And we, <laughs> But then later on, he started playing with Legos. And this was when websites were starting. So he started looking on the Lego website and I used to let him do this. And he was learned to use a mouse. And before I could stop him, he clicked on something called the story of Anakin Skywalker. It's still up there somewhere on YouTube. And I'm pretty sure that even though it didn't have words, he knew by the end of that three minute video that Anakin Skywalker was Darth Vader. So he was not gonna have that moment that I have. But actually I think George Lucas would say, that's, that's fine. That's not actually, the, that's, that was a moment of that moment, that cultural moment, 1980. It isn't actually the main thing you're supposed to have. What you're supposed to have instead is something that we might call dramatic irony. So that if you watch the films in the order that he thinks you should watch them in, which is chronologically, from, you know, in terms of the story, one, two, three, four, five, six, by the time you get to four, you know who Luke Skywalker is. So it's no longer a moment of reversal recognition. It is, or it is for Luke, but not for us. What the whole thing becomes is a study in dramatic irony, right? Because we have information That Luke and Leia don't have. And we're starting, we're we're wondering when that information is going to, to, they're going to catch up to what we already know. And there's a special kind of tension that the dramatic irony situation creates. One of the greatest examples of it is probably Shakespeare's Othello, where we know from the start that the villain Iago, who's talking to us through soliloquies, is plotting Othello's downfall, and we watch it unfold. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm sure many audiences mm. wish that they could run up on the stage and tap a fellow on the shoulders. They look over there or ask that question. And that's a little bit like what we might think is going on if we experience the films in that way. So that is a kind of shift in the meaning of films that happens over time and with different audience expectations. And, you know, that, that notion of what I call the horizon of expectations after a concept and reader response theory is another thing that I explore in the, the Lucasfilm book.
1: So to the nerdy part now. Yeah, who is always happy to be nerdy. <laughs> so who is your favorite character of the Star Wars Oh, universe? see,
0: that's like trying to say, what is your favorite <laughs> literary word? But and I'm willing to say, Can
1: okay, you explain okay, look,
0: so here, why is so it here, Yoda, Baby Yoda? <laughs> why isn't it Baby Yoda? You yep. mean Grogu? Oh, I love Grogu. But, uh, who doesn't love Grogu? But is he going to be my favorite character? Now, I think he has to earn it a little bit more. I'll say at the moment, what I'm willing to say is that I have, favorite characters right now for each of the trilogies. I mean, actually, I didn't identify with the Force Wielders or with Luke when I saw the original trilogy. I really liked Han Solo, the kind of outlaw figure, the sort of cowboy figure. He was the sort of maverick. He was the one with whom I identified. In the prequel trilogy, I really loved Mace Windu, the one with the purple white saber, Mm -hmm. the kind of take-no-prisoners badass character who meets with an incredibly elaborate showy end, but he's, he's powerful. One of my favorite novels in the, I've read all of these things, in the, the now decanonized legend series is a, is a novel that's centered on Mace Windu. That's really, that owes a debt to Heart of Darkness in which he needs to go to a planet and recover his Padawan. And it's told from his perspective. So I love that character. And then if you were gonna, if you made me like under pain of something or just say who's my current favorite Star Wars character right now, it would be Ray, as portrayed wow. by Daisy Ridley. And there are moments in The Rise of Skywalker that I just love, they're tiny moments when something, when, when Ridley inhabits that character and, and has a kind of fierceness about her that I just think is tremendously appealing. Grogu hasn't made me feel that yet, but who knows, you know, Grogu may grow up and then have, you know, some people are speculating he's gonna have a very terrible dark side fate if we get to the point where, you know, the, the stuff that we see in Force Awakens and, and Last Jedi. So we'll see. He'll have to so, earn. Yeah, so, <laughs> so I, 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 I like Grogu, but right now he's just he's still in there with the kind of cute characters that one likes, like R2-D2 or BB-8 or, you know, I even like the Ewok, I'll confess, from Return of the Jedi. But they're not my favorite characters, although I think they are an important part of Star Wars. And anybody who thinks that the cutie characters shouldn't be in Star Wars is missing something crucial about Star Wars.
1: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project?
0: Well, so part of the thing about this book is I said, you know, I worked on it a while and I, I had extra time to work on it. And for a while, I was really afraid that I'd never write like writing another book as much as I liked writing this one. So, you know, in a little bit of postpartum anxiety, I do have a couple of spin-off projects that I'm working on. One is a commissioned essay about witchcraft. And so it's going to be about these characters from the expanded universe that have now become kind of mainstream Star Wars, the witches of Dathomir. And I'm going to be talking about them as an example of how Star Wars is a transmedia phenomenon that, as you asked about, kind of responds to, but then also tries to push the envelope of its cultural moment. And I'm also working on a piece. I don't actually know what's going to happen, whether I'm going to put it up on my website or whether I'm going to try to pitch it somewhere. You know, there's an alternate. There was a, a, a script that was written by Colin Trevorrow for the ninth film that was ultimately not produced. It could never have been produced because it really heavily relied on Princess Leia, who was played by the late Carrie Fisher and whom they were not going to recast. But one of the things that I wanted to do was a kind of philosophical thought experiment where I was going to say, if that were episode nine, how would my analysis have to change in the book? So I'm working on a little kind of fanciful bit of creative nonfiction about thinking about, you know, an alternative universe, we could think Marvel or something, um, in which that actually is episode nine. And I'm kind of working on the book at that moment where I said, okay, now I have to deal with episode nine in this book, how would I have done it differently? But beyond that, I'm interested in some projects that are about, again, the global circulation of texts. Since I've been here at NYU Abu Dhabi for 10 years, I've been studying Hamlet as a case study in um, the circulation of global texts you know, there was a, a field called global Shakespeare that we thought was going to be one of the ways in which we would do something interesting and different here um, at NYU Abu Dhabi, since we're not back in New York, since we're in the Middle East, it's a kind of global crossroads. You know, we're teaching in English, so maybe the literature program should have Shakespeare as a common author, but we can't simply do Shakespeare. We should do, uh, I don't know, global Shakespeare. And then we found out that it was already a kind of beginning enterprise within Shakespeare studies. But it was really very focused on presentist adaptations, translations, which we might think of as post-colonial Shakespeare. And I got really interested in everything leading up to that. How did Shakespeare become available to inspire and also antagonize new work into being? So I've been doing a lot of work to study two other, we might think of them as stages or sets of questions about global Shakespeare. One is, was there something that we would now call global going on in Shakespeare's text in his own day? In what way was he already global? even though that's in a kind of anachronism when thinking about Elizabeth and Jacobi in England. And then thinking about, well, how did Shakespeare actually, what was the actual material process through which his work spread? Through performance and translation and teaching and imperialism, all the forces that led to the creation of Shakespeare. We might call him Shakespeare in scare quotes, that kind of global commodity. And Hamlet is a wonderful play to think about those questions uh, with because it's constantly being produced you know, before the pandemic, you would probably say there's always a Hamlet going on somewhere in the world. Some of these are straight up Hamlet. Some of them are radically cut Hamlets, Some of them are translated. Some of them are loosely Hamlet plays, but not even. There's a tremendous tradition in the Arab world, for example, of Hamlet plays that aren't Hamlet, but are inspired by Hamlet. And I'm thinking about, so I'm going to write a project that basically is about the global spread of Hamlet. I'm calling it Hamlet worldwide right now. But at the same time, I'm also trying to work a company that would work on a theoretical piece about this notion of global spread in which I would think about um, how other forms besides plays like Hamlet spread and how we need to alter the questions. How would we need to alter the question if we're dealing with a novel like this is one of my case studies, Frankenstein, right, which has had a tremendous impact around the world, but only in part by being read, in part by being adapted, but by moving to films. And so I have other examples from other genres that I'd like to look at. And here's sort of the punchline for our purposes. My final case study will be film and the final case study would therefore be Star Wars. And I am so glad that Star Wars Visions, the the anime adaptation of Star Wars has just come out because that's a really rich way Mm -hmm. of making the point that Star Wars is part of global cultural heritage in the way that these other things are.
1: And where can our listeners find more inf- information about your work and also your book?
0: Well, I have a, a website uh, that's called Patel, P-A-T-E-L-L. My grandfather changed the spelling from the standard one L, patel2Ls.net. And there's a subsection of that called Star Wars, one word, i where I'm, I'm having uh, information there a little I'm going to start to tell some stories akin to the ones that we've been having today, Um, and also I have a newsletter that people can sign up there where they'll get, um, some stuff about not only the book, but the ideas that the book is interested in. So more stuff about shared universes and possibly the Marvel shared universes. I'm trying to get some of my former students from the star Wars, uh, seminar to contribute to that. I think I had pegged it to holidays over the summer, but I think now it's going to be every the fourth of the month. Uh, so that, you know, May the 4th is one of the days on which it it would, it would come out. And of course the book is now available at many of your online out, um, outlets like Amazon or Barnes & Noble, and also I think increasingly at local bookstores. I did realize that writing a book like this for Bloomsbury Academic is not the right same as writing you know, what they expect will be the next prospective bestseller. Because I got all excited when I learned that the publication date was August 20. And I I placed an order with Amazon for like, you know, I don't know how many, 20 of them so that I could give them to, to friends and people who supported me over the year. And of course, the 12th came and they're like, yeah, this will be coming from Blackwell's in the UK in two weeks, which was the time when I was already going to be back in Abu Dhabi. And in fact, I happened to go to the UK where I was lucky to see Ian McKellen Hamlet three times in the course of a week and the book wasn't anywhere in any of the UK bookstores either but now now it's available so I hope that readers who find this this talk interesting or think the book has something to offer them will find a way to to get a copy.
1: Well thank you so much for joining me today and for this force of awakening discussion. (laughs) Sorry the (laughs) fun.
0: (laughs) Galena it's perfectly okay I embrace it and thank you very much for having me.